Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Dr. Seema Yasmin, who's an award-winning author, journalist, physician, and professor at Stanford University. She's also the author of the new book, What the Fact? Finding the Truth in All the Noise, which seeks to make sense of today's highly permissive media landscape and marketplace of ideas for a younger generation of readers. I'm grateful to talk to her about the book, including the importance of media literacy, and navigating the complexities of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Seema, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, Sean. I'm excited to chat with you, so thank you for inviting me. You were appointed the Dalalana Global Journalism Fellow at the University of Toronto in 2013. What, in your view, are the biggest changes to the media landscape and marketplace of ideas in the decade or so since then? Oh my God, I can't believe it was that long ago. I'll tell you one of the things that struck me when I started that very unique journalism program at U of T. At that time, I had just come out of a two-year position at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I'd served as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service. So I had been the consumer of news, right? I was that person who read The Guardian, who listened to BBC World Service, And I had understood during my tenure as a federal government disease detective that I needed to understand how to tell a story, how to frame a narrative, how to effectively counter health and science misinformation and disinformation if I was going to be successful in any way as a public health doctor. So I leave the CDC because it was 2013. I had been there two years and I was so frustrated that we had this singular focus on the spread of pathogens, but not on the concurrent spread of misinformation and disinformation about pathogens. And that contagious nature of information was the reason the epidemics were happening, the reason that measles was resurging, the reason that children in America were dying of whooping cough wasn't because science was lacking. We had amazing vaccines. The problem was that there was this contagion of bad information, and that information was much more compelling, much more memorable than anything that public health was putting out, and perhaps even more so than what was happening in journalism. So I moved to Toronto in 2013. I start this fellowship, and right off the bat, the director of the program, Rob Steiner, says to us, You know, you may not know this because you haven't been in the journalism world, but I have. I've been at Wall Street Journal and, you know, I've been a Pulitzer Prize finalist and I know this industry, but everything is changing. And this is not your traditional journalism program. And I am going to set you up for success as a freelancer. And 
I loved that idea because he was turning us into entrepreneurs and people who understood the business of news, as opposed to just people who could churn out really, really, really good reporting. And I thought to myself, you know, this is such a weird career move. People are looking at me sideways like, you just did this really prestigious thing at CDC that usually people do because it establishes them for the rest of their lives as having a successful career in public health. And I stepped away from that conveyor belt to go to like people like journalism school. A lot of people did get it, but it was also weird to me because I was like, I can't believe I'm going back to school. I did not know how I was going to use that journalism training, except I just understood the skills were necessary. But here's the thing, as much as Rob Steiner was getting us ready to be successful freelancers, I got snapped up by the Dallas Morning News, uh, a newspaper in Texas, a legacy paper, been around for over 100 years. And I had never even been to Texas, but straight out of the program, I was immersed in a very respected, very longstanding daily newspaper in Dallas that used to have bureaus in Moscow and Tokyo and, you know, all around the world. And immediately the reception I got was like, we're so glad you're here, but I'm like, why are you here? This profession feels like it's dying. And the amazing journalists in the newsroom back in 2014 in Dallas were wounded. I mean, they were practically limping around the newsroom because they'd survived layoffs and they'd seen their friends lose their careers. And What I saw, though, to kind of more directly answer your question was a lot of innovation at the Dallas Morning News, which I think kind of was uh, symbolic of other things happening in the industry. So, for example, daily news and the business of that had changed so much because of online advertising. And so the Dallas Morning News knew that it wanted to put out a robust product, but it scaled back all of its international stuff and was like, you know, we hired you to write about public health. Everything you write will have a focus on Texas. And that really challenged me, but excited me because everything is a local story. The other thing I saw was that they generated revenue through events, through the Dallas Ideas Festival, um, through other events like that. So there was a lot of innovation going on. Of course, since then, I mean, it's interesting you asked this question because it's now 2022. For the last few years, what I have been studying is the growth of news deserts across America, the decimation of local news, like where I cut my teeth. And I study the impact of information deserts on us. How does it change the way that we make decisions about getting vaccinated or not? If you live in a news desert, as my research group defines it, how does that impact your life expectancy, for example? So all of that to say that journalism is still in churn, the dedication page in What the Fact, if you noticed it, is, is to my nephew, uh, Mohammed Ayman, who wants to be a journalist, who's young, he's like 19, and keeps being told by people, why are you doing a journalism degree? Um, so to kind of sum up the answer, everything is in flux. It feels broken. It's easy to say local news is the immune system of a democracy. It is. Uh, it's easy to say local news is dying. Therefore, p- please subscribe to your local paper. But as I outline in a whole chat, in what the fact there's a lot that's wrong with news and we need innovation and we need the Muhammad Amens of the world to come in and perhaps raise some of it to the ground and and build up. We'll come to some of that forward thinking in the book. But before we get there, I want to take up one issue that I thought was really informative and insightful. And that is the observation you make that so-called fake news is hardly new. 
we've lived with the widespread dissemination of false information for centuries. The question for you is, how has it changed in qualitative and quantitative terms? Are we living through something fundamentally different? Or is this just the modern expression of an age-old problem? It's easy to say, oh, the internet. And it's easy to say, oh, social media. Everything is so dire. The reason why I write about history, even in a book that's aimed at younger readers, although, you know, it's for everyone. um, The reason I do that is because it is easy to feel hopeless when people talk about quote unquote fake news. We can talk about that term too. Um, I heard something really smart. I wish I knew who it was. I just, you know, you turn on your car and NPR comes on and you catch the end of an interview, but this very wise person being interviewed on NPR said about climate change, that climate change hopelessness is the new denial. And I was like, yeah, that actually makes sense. You might be coming from a slightly different place to someone who's an outright denialist, but the effect is the same. So if you feel like climate change or the viral spread of false information is this intractable problem that just cannot be solved and it's so overwhelming, you kind of tap out of being part of the solution. So the reason that I wrote about this historical perspective was to say, hey, I know things feel dire right now, but one, keep reading the book because it's going to get so optimistic and so evidence-based and so solutions-oriented as to how we actually fix this. But yeah, this ain't nothing new. As long as humans have been around, there's been taradiddlers and there's been saltambinga, I can't remember the word, like all these weird ancient words from the English language, at least that I put into the book to say, you know, the, the quacks of your and the, <laughs> the fake news spreaders of the 13th century, there were names for them back then too. And then even once we had, you know, very formal newspapers, we had yellow journalism and we had propaganda. And hey, did you know that the whole history of newspapers in the US really was born out of being a mouthpiece of future presidents and of, you know, um, political parties? Things are different now, but they're not completely different. They're not brand new. We just have different technologies, I think. Um, and we have perhaps the means for false information to spread perhaps quicker. Although, I don't know, you look back to how well organized information sharing was during the Roman Empire. I mean, it was vast. Maybe it took a little bit longer, but perhaps you had people's ear more. Perhaps you had fewer sources of information, therefore propaganda could be that much more powerful. So the dynamics have changed, but this problem in itself is not new. And that's why I don't want us to feel like it's hopeless. We can get a handle on this. That's a great answer, Seema. And, uh, you know, I noted that you you emphasize uh, words and, and language. And if it's okay, I want to ask a, a couple of nomenclature questions. In the book, you use the uppercase for bias, groupthink, and disinformation. Two questions. First, what does your use of the uppercase signify about these phenomena? And second, how are they interrelated? Oh, I love that you said that because I literally was just listening to uh, BBC Radio 4 and they had an author talking about his non-use of capitalization in his novel. And the only thing that he capitalized was I. And he said it was to do with fighting back against the British Empire um, and, and colonization. So, yeah, you know, language is really powerful. And these choices are deliberate. When it came to things like groupthink and bias and disinformation, I capitalized them because especially when writing for a younger audience, but honestly, for all of us, you know, YA, YA, 
literature is not dumbed down at all. It's just written to be super entertaining and accessible and engaging. I was thinking about some of these more abstract concepts like the viral spread of misinformation and disinformation. Uh, and I'm using a lot of metaphors and analogies in the book. I'm using that, you know, uh, outbreak kind of metaphor, lots of medical metaphors. But I'm also thinking about some of these entities as characters, perhaps. And I think that's why I capitalize them. And even me, it kind of helps me get my head around things when I can perhaps capitalize a concept and turn it into a character within a narrative. And I think perhaps for a younger reader, that can be a bit more engaging than it just being this abstract, invisible spread of information across the airwaves. Similarly, you distinguish between misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. What are their differences? Yeah, so I'll go through the differences. But just to say before that, the reason I do that is because otherwise this term fake news gets lobbed around a lot to the point that I think some of us are tired of it. It just gets used as a like, oh, someone said something a bit iffy, like fake news. Let's just say that to shut them up. But also fake news is really, really vague. And within that bucket are like 10 different, well, 20, 50 different kinds of false information, or sometimes maybe not so false. And then also it gets lobbed like a word grenade by usually people in power who don't want people like journalists holding them to account. So the reason I explain in the book, like, hey, let's be up on the language. Let's be able to call this thing misinformation and know that it's different from disinformation is because it's empowering. It's specific. And as a physician myself, I think, you know, you can't really help someone or you can't really progress in someone's treatment plan until you've given them a diagnosis. And I remember one time saying to my mother when I was in med school, like, oh, wouldn't it be horrible to have like a disease or a syndrome named after you? But there are so many eponymous diseases in medicine, like it's so weird. And my mom was like, not really, because to many people, when they get a diagnosis, it's so liberating to have language that describes what it is they're going through. And I was like, oh, I hadn't, I was young. I hadn't thought of it that way. And so I think that's why it is empowering to say, you've just hit me with 10 different things that are false, but I can call them what they are. I know the difference between satire and parody and malinformation and disinformation. So it's why I explain that misinformation, that's false information that spread usually without someone knowing that what they're saying is not fact-based and then not sharing it with any bad intention. So an example might be that, you know, the beginning of the COVID pandemic, a friend says to you, hey, there's this like virus spreading. And I heard that if every day you gargle with salt water, you won't get this new coronavirus. Your friend didn't know any better. And hopefully they really are your friend. They're not trying to make you susceptible to or feel like you're immune to COVID. And so that's misinformation. But it's different from disinformation, where you might see a tweet that is spread by someone connected to a foreign government, perhaps that wants to disrupt your nation, saying that COVID is a hoax, and it's a hoax invented by your government, it is trying to dupe you. Um, Or, you know, we saw a lot of disinformation during the Ebola epidemic of 2014 to 2016. We saw Russian-backed groups hack news organizations in the US and declare disinformation such as as an Ebola outbreak in Atlanta. And that, for example, can stoke really bad chaos. Um, and so it can harm, you know, it can overwhelm urgent cares and ERs and cause people to panic and be really unhelpful and dangerous to those who actually are having a heart attack, actually need to get into the ER. So there's this, there's a distinction. And I think it's important because it speaks to power. And I think power is at the heart of this. Um, what are people trying to 
say to us? How are they trying to control us? And the information that we're seeing, like, what's the agenda behind it? You also take on directly what you describe as, quote, the myth of objectivity. It reminds me of a recent episode we did with journalist Chris Starwalt, who instead talked of the goal of, quote, aspirational fairness. As media consumers, how should we think about objectivity? And what should journalists or commentators in the public square be aspiring to? I like the aspirational fairness because I think it speaks honestly to this idea that it's the hard goal, um, but it's doable. I think more about radical transparency. So, for example, as opposed to me being the faceless, nameless, in the case of The Economist, right, faceless, nameless author of this information, perhaps it's more helpful for you to see my name, to see an avatar, see my face, to know that I'm brown, that I'm Muslim, that I present as a woman, um, that I have this accent, that I grew up in a particular place. Perhaps that helps you see that I receive the world through a particular lens. And that informs my reporting because it even informs what I consider to be newsworthy. And we just, I don't think we've been honest about those conversations. And especially sometimes when I've had these discussions with veteran journalists who are like, you know, the journalists of the 70s or the 80s in America, there's this idea that it was really good back then and not now. And I'm like, was it really good back then when you were a news anchor and everyone looked like you and was like a straight white able-bodied man, like that's better than now. But the thing, the problem is now that we're still pushing this concept of the view from nowhere, this myth of neutrality and objectivity instead of striving for radical fairness. And I, you know, I go through so many examples in that chapter in what the fact about a black journalist being told she can't cover the Black Lives Matter movement or the George Floyd protest. But um, are we having those same conversations with white journalists about what they supposedly can or cannot cover And just having cut my teeth, you know, for three years in a local newsroom and seeing how those editorial decisions getting made and not to necessarily just throw the Dallas Morning News under the bus because it happens everywhere. Although I'm particularly annoyed with the editorial board at the moment because they just endorsed Greg Abbott for a third term, which is just seems absolutely irresponsible and horrific. But there were legit times when I was one of only two non-white people in a morning news meeting. And somebody white would say, oh, we need like the black perspective on such and such a story. Can somebody go to South Dallas? As if that's where all the black people lived in one bubble. And legit, somebody would say, oh, can someone go to a barber shop? As if black people might not also be in the ER or in a law office. Like, So this crap still happens. And the people that get to make decisions about what's on the front page and what's on the left on the cutting room floor... They're not, they're not understanding the live realities of the people they're supposed to be reporting on. And I remember after that horrific shooting, the mass shooting in downtown Dallas in 2016, which we covered weeks after that, there were Blue Lives Matter placards in lots of uh, gardens in my neighborhood. And I would drive past them on my way into work. And I said to an editor who was responsible for the race coverage, I said something like, Oh, It's sinister, you know, having to like see all of those um, Blue Lives Matter signs. And he was like, well, why would police support be sinister to you? Like he did not get it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you are responsible for editing and making news judgment about reporting on race in Dallas. And you don't understand why for a brown person, for a Muslim person, for an immigrant, 
that kind of very vocal and visible support for police would be scary. So, and I, I go through the details in, in the chapter as well about how back in the day, We've had editorials in the LA Times that endorsed the internment of Japanese Americans that fully backed the status quo, which was extremely racist. We've had uh, the paper in Kansas recently and Nat Geo apologize for their erasure or misrepresentation of people of color. So I strive for that to be done. I mean, I strive for the dirty laundry to be washed. I strive for there to be atonement. I strive for there to be equity in newsrooms. It's not just about quotas and making people feel better, but actually about having representation in the newsroom um, that really reflects the communities that local news is supposed to serve. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I want to follow up on that answer and, and ask about the role of gatekeepers. Some might argue that the old media landscape or marketplace of ideas was less prone to the spread of false information, but it was also less democratized and closed off to different voices and perspectives. How should we think about the trade-off between a more democratized public square and the supply of false ideas? Or is it wrong in your view to think about it as a matter of trade-offs? I thought about this a lot in the context of a book for young people that especially is focused on digital literacy and thinking about social media. And just personally being immersed in social media, even more than I normally am, my brain is definitely, you know, the dopamine surges are real. I'm definitely hooked to those pings and likes and notifications. But I was immersed in TikTok way more than I would have been if I'd not been writing this book. And at some points, you just want to throw your phone across the room, right? When, especially when you see what's being targeted at young people. And so it would have been easy and tempting to say it's just so bad, for example, thinking about the spread of false information on social media, which on the one hand, you can argue has democratized information sharing and has made everyone a publisher. But that would have been unfair. One, because there's such a focus on the big platforms, the metas the YouTubes, the TikToks, when there are other, better, more equitable, less revenue-focused, less profit-driven platforms out there. But also to your point, because I want young people to know that there's incredible organizing and activism and information sharing that's happening on social media that speaks directly to what you're saying in terms of speaking out against authoritarian governments who have state-controlled media outlets where it's really hard to get information from the source and from the streets. And what you see is very much propaganda. So, you know, in Russia and Iran, but even here, like how many times do we see corrections or voices on Twitter or on Instagram or on TikTok saying, hey, you may have seen this on mainstream news, but Here's what's really happening. And then we've seen incredible organizations like Blavity emerge out of tragedy 
So the, the murder of Mike Brown in Ferguson and Blavity, this black owned, black led, black focused news organization saying, look, we saw all this coverage on CNN and other outlets about what was happening in Ferguson and we didn't see ourselves represented. So to answer your question, yes no everything i don't know like um all of those things are happening and we just have to have these really frank discussions with young people that you are within this information ecosystem in which all of these things are happening there is the democratization of publishing there is still the florid misrepresentation of people of color of queer people of disabled people erasure of these people from the news and how are you going to be really savvy about navigating your journey through this information ecosystem. It doesn't have to be daunting. It can actually be really fun and really empowering. And what the fact was written to be kind of your your guidebook, your map through that fascinating information ecosystem. And I should just say in parentheses for listeners, the book outlines a strategy for young people in particular, but all media consumers in, in general to be able to do precisely what Seema has just outline. I want to stay on the topic, though, of the kind of tensions and trade-offs between trying to distinguish, you know, good news from bad news. Recent reporting by ProPublica seems to point to reasonably compelling evidence that the novel coronavirus may have indeed started in a Wuhan laboratory. 20 months ago or so, that idea would have probably been characterized as some combination of misinformation, disinformation, or even malinformation. I guess my question is, how can we enable a process of continuous learning and information gathering as, say, set out in the scientific method without leaving the door open to any and all crazy ideas? I think the problem has been, especially in the context of COVID, that during an acute crisis, we've been trying to get people up to speed on the scientific process, for example, on the journalistic process, on how fact-checking works. And we've seen that backfire or we've seen how that is really difficult during a crisis and how you have to do the scientific literacy building, the media literacy, the critical thinking, the you know, all of that beforehand. Otherwise, it all feeds into the crisis. Um, I think you're right in the early on that theory would have been shot down, except it probably would have been shot down with the caveat that based on what we know right now, it seems unlikely. And I had conversations with scientists at that time. And one of the things we talked about was looking at the genome of the coronavirus and looking at its particular um, shape, you know, just its characteristic that if somebody was trying to perhaps create a virus for bio-warfare, it probably wouldn't necessarily look like this. And I don't think perhaps the reporting is all speaking to this being malicious, for example, or intentional, but you make those decisions or you provide that analysis based on the best available evidence at that time. What it looks like then is if someone changes their mind, for example, Dr. Fauci early in the pandemic saying you don't need to wear a mask, a couple of weeks later saying we want everyone to wear a cloth mask, it looks to many who are perhaps not the most scientifically literate. Like that man doesn't know what he's talking about. He's backtracking what's happening. And yet we haven't taught people that a good scientist will change their mind based on the best available evidence that science isn't a textbook. Science is not a pile of static facts. Science is a process of asking the question. It's a process of information discovery. But if you haven't got someone up to speed on that, then it just looks like you're wishy-washy and prevaricating perhaps. Um, So I think the solution to a lot of this, the solution to polarization, um, 
is what's outlined in the book, which is one, understanding how news is made, understanding how fact-checking is done, understanding the scientific process, but also developing this internal mental immunity to becoming polarized and to falling for false information. And what that looks like, uh, this mental immunity, we're calling it like cognitive immunity or resilience to falsehoods and polarization. It looks like saying, okay, you've just told me a thing. You've told me that you think based on what's out there, that this virus likely did not emerge from a lab accident or from some intentional creation of a novel virus. Okay. You're giving me this evidence to back up what you're saying. I'm not going to say, yes, I believe you. No, I believe you. Let's do away with this idea that belief is binary. What you might want to do is say, I'm going to go with perhaps leaning towards agreeing with you. I'm going to give this belief a level of strength, a level of credence. It's going to be like maybe six or seven. What that does when you treat belief like a dimmer switch as opposed to an on-off switch is it leaves you mentally much more open to taking in more information and reassessing as opposed to, yes, I just believe that it was fake. This is fake news. This virus came out of a lab. The Chinese haters and the American government's just trying to hide things. As opposed to that, you're saying, I'm going to perhaps lean towards believing that, but I'm going to give that strength, that belief, a level of strength of five or six or seven, perhaps, whichever way you want to go. Then you gather new intel and you're willing to shift. That's actually how you develop mental antibodies, as we're calling them now, in this field of cognitive immunity. That's a brilliant answer. Let me just ask a follow-up question. Do you think it's possible in our current social and political context for voices of authority, whether it's politicians or scientists or, or other experts, to be able to communicate along those lines? Or, or do you think that the incentives or the pressures to speak much more declaratively are simply too powerful? When I first moved to America in around 2011 to work as a disease detective in the government, the CDC stationed me in Phoenix, Arizona, and I got to know about the goings-on of Sheriff Joe Arpaio very well because of his horrific tent city in which mostly men of color were incarcerated, made to wear pink boxer shorts and all this weird, cruel stuff. And the reason I got to know it is there were often outbreaks inside this horrific incarceration facility. And one day I got invited by a journalist friend to go watch a screening of a documentary about him. And the journalist friend's friend had made this documentary. She tracked Sheriff Joe Arpaio for years and years. And what I learned in watching this documentary is the man that I had got to know. That's perhaps not who he really was. And it's perhaps not who he started out as. But what Sheriff Joe learned is that he became a public figure. He became a celebrity and he became a household name. Just Sheriff Joe, you knew who he was, Maricopa County Sheriff, by being more and more and more polarized or polarizing by having these extreme beliefs and being incredibly cruel. So the reason I think of that when you ask that question is I think that many in power have realized that in the context of global polarization, nationalization, uh, what feels often, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, is a swing towards the right and sometimes the extreme right, that being that polarizing figure means big bucks or means re-election or means more airtime. 
Uh, and that's one of the, the challenges that we are up against, especially in the face of platforms which are cowardly and won't deplatform some of these individuals. You know, we know about the disinformation dozen, the 12 people, public figures who are responsible for more than 60% of spread of COVID lies on social media. Organizations like the Center for Countering Digital Hate, CCDH, have collected tons of data over the course of the pandemic to show what considerable harms these 12 individuals can do. They are empowered by the platforms and the platforms continue to resist this evidence and to do anything about them. So that's the quandary we're in right now. And that's why the solution to me feels like arming young people with a book like What the Fact and saying, you be the savvy one. You be the change maker in the future, but at least right now, you be the person with whom the viral spread of false information stops. I'm, I'm going to wrap up our conversation with a question about the relative role of business, government, and individuals to address these issues. But before I do, I want to ask you a penultimate question. You call addressing the challenge of false information the, quote, problem of our time. Why is it so important in your view? Because everything hinges on that. And sometimes when I say, I do think, oh, but maybe it's Islamophobia, maybe it's right, white supremacy, maybe it's climate change, except how we learn about those issues, how we tackle those issues, it always hinges on information. And it always hinges on our engagement with social media platforms and with the media. So unless we understand how bad actors overseas or corrupt governments, or wh wherever they might be, foreign lands or right here, how they can manipulate us, how they can make a diagnosis of what's already broken in our society and deepen those chasms by engineering messages that polarize us even more, we're just never going to get a handle on anything. I mean, information warfare forever has been used to disrupt and dissolve democracies, and we're, we're watching it happen right now. And unless we get a handle on that, for the next generation especially, then good luck tackling white supremacy, climate change, any of that stuff. As I said, Seema, it begs the question, what's the relative role of business, government and individuals to combat the spread of false information? The relative part is difficult, right? Because then so much of the onus gets put on the, in, gets put on the individual. You be the one that pushes back against government. You be the one that pushes back against social media. However, that might be disengaging or complaining or reporting or act, being an activist and organizing. But, you know, it really is going to be the interplay of all of those three pillars, as I think of it. Uh, government needs to step up. We need media literacy in schools, for example, and writing what the facts I learned that most states in the US don't mandate that kids learn anything about media literacy. And so I was like, amazed that teachers have been so excited about using what the fact to teach this. And we've created a teaching guide with the Pulitzer Center that has lesson plans and chapter guides and stuff like that. So there's the government role, as I mentioned, the social media not doing enough. And then there's the individual responsibility and the individual power. You know, we have as, as people, but um, people on our own, but then also as communities and as organizers to push back against the social media platforms that profit off this disruption that really make money by hooking us and hooking our dopamine reward systems in our brain. And then we also need to push back against government too, to make sure that our kids are empowered and savvy consumers of information. Uh, this has been a highly informative conversation, as is the book, What the Fact, Finding the Truth and All the Noise. Dr. Seema Yasmin, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. 
Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.